Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke 18, verses 15 through 30. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Good to see so many of you here on this holiday weekend. We continue this morning in a series on the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is journeying with his disciples from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, where he will be arrested, put on trial, sentenced to death, and crucified as a criminal of the state. But, of course, there is much more going on here with his death. It's actually the fruition of God's eternal plan of salvation, and so... To journey with him as his disciple, then, is to take up our own cross and to share his fate. And all of the material here in this middle section of this gospel illustrates what a life of cross-bearing looks like, a life of sacrifice and service to others, and so forth. However, the promise stands that we've already seen that if you lose your life in following after him, if you lose your wealth... If you lose your good reputation or the comfort of family and friends, the result isn't that at the end of that loss that you live a life of misery. If you lose your life, you find life. That's the promise. And this rich young ruler, this man who approaches Jesus, he is successful, he is powerful, he is respected, he is wealthy. But do you notice there, verse 18, he's still looking for life. Teacher, how do I find life? What must I do to inherit eternal life is this question because in all of his success, in all of his wealth, in all of his being respected by others, he still hasn't found life. And so this is a text about eternal life. Look, verse 18, the passage begins in verse 18 and it ends in verse 30 with with that phrase, eternal life. And anytime you see that in the scripture where a certain passage begins and ends with a similar phrase, it means that it is the theme of the entire part. 
Okay? All, everything from verse 18 down to verse 30, the theme is eternal life. And by eternal life, the Bible does not refer to a still future reality. It's something we have to kind of deprogram ourselves from thinking. The phrase means, as Dallas Willard has put it in his book, um, The Divine Conspiracy, an eternal kind of life. It's life that's truly life that we can enter into now that then goes on forever, even after death. So the promise of the gospel is abundant life, not just heaven when we die. But in the present, and even in cross-bearing, like we're called to here, eternal, abundant life. This story of the rich young ruler and his encounter with Jesus is a lesson about how people like us can find eternal life. And it's also a warning about the tragedy of turning away from the only one who can give it. Okay, so there's four things, and you'll see those four points of the outline that I've given to you uh, this morning. So about eternal life... Here's what we're going to talk about this morning. First, that the things that we have are are the things that are keeping us most often from eternal life. Secondly, then the one thing that we don't have, the one thing we lack, is actually the very door to eternal life. And if that's true, if it's the things that we have that are keeping us from it, and the one thing that we don't have that is actually the door to it, then number three, what must we do to get the one thing we lack? And then the power to do that thing because it's hard. Okay? Let me say it again. So the things that we have are the very things that are keeping us from eternal life. The one thing we lack is the very doorway into it. So what we must do then to get the one thing we lack, and because it's hard, we need to see the power to do that thing. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's just start here with this first lesson. And the lesson is that the things that we have are the things often that are keeping us from eternal life. What does this man have? Well, look here with me. We're told, verse 18, that he's a ruler which means that he is an influential person in the community, a civic leader who's well-respected. We're told not only that, but he's rich. And not just rich, he's, verse 23, he's extremely rich. So he's part of the 1%. And as if that, there aren't enough reasons for us to already hate him, Matthew tells, him, tells us in the gospel that he's young. So he's well-respected and he's rich and he's young. This guy has everything in the world going for him. He's well-liked, he's well-connected, he's well-funded. He's what moms would call a nice young man. The kind of guy you want your daughter to bring home. But you see, the irony of the text is that though all of these things, his reputation and his wealth and his youth, were assets, though they were in in many ways in his life assets, the irony is, is that these very assets, when it comes to spiritual things, the assets were actually liabilities. His whole way of life created certain assumptions on, about how things work. And you see it in his opening line as he approaches Jesus in verse 18. Look here, this really sets the stage. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, whatever problem this young man has come up against in his life, he's been able to take his wealth and his connections and his smarts, and he's been able to solve it in his own strength. And here again, he assumes that the solution to a spiritual problem would surely come from him. There's something he must do. What must I do, he says. He's very moral. He's been very careful, we find out, right, to follow the law in great detail. No adultery, no murder, no stealing, no bearing false witness. Honor your father and mother. He's done all of these things. He has no problem with any of that, but he is sure that there must still be something more that he must do because he would earn his eternal life. This young man is a moralist. He believes in salvation by works. Look at how he addresses Jesus. Good teacher, he says. He calls him 
good teacher, not master, not Lord, not by any of the Christological titles that we find in the gospel, son of man or son of David that express genuine faith and understanding. And he, this means that he admires Jesus for his teaching. He sees Jesus as a good person. And as a fellow good person, he wants to get together to see if Jesus might have any advice about how he might improve his already good record of obedience so that he'll be sure he can get to heaven. He would save himself. He believes that his salvation is what he does. It comes from him. It's his doing. Now, there's a story in the Old Testament that parallels this encounter between Jesus and this young man. It's the story of Naaman, the great Syrian general. You might remember this in 2 Kings, a military hero. This man had quite an impressive resume, but uh, he had a problem. He was a leper. And so he came to Israel to Elisha the prophet to be healed of his leprosy. But what happens is the story unfolds, and without much detail, he gets very offended because when he comes to the prophet, he, he isn't required by the prophet to perform any heroic feat of strength in order to earn the healing that the prophet would give him. He brought all of his riches with him and all of his strength with him because he was bound to determine that he was going to pay for the healing that he would get. And it just doesn't work that way. And yet we find that's the default mode of the human heart. The disciples themselves in our passage were not immune to this way of thinking. Look how they respond down at the end when the rich young man walks away without salvation. Who then can be saved, verse 26, they say, if not the wealthy and the well-connected like this guy, well then who? And what we learn is that both Naaman in the Old Testament and this rich young ruler here in Luke 18, they both have and we have a very important lesson to learn, and that is that salvation is by grace, not by works or station. Salvation is what God does for us, not what we do for him. We are saved, and he saves, Titus, which David read a minute ago, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but instead according to his mercy. See, Jesus rejects the rich young ruler's premise at the very beginning. Do you see that in it? Great, good teacher, he says. And then verse 19, Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, there's a lot going on in the reason Jesus does that that we don't have time to get into this morning, but but part of it is this, that the lesson he wants this young man to learn is, see, if you think to come to God on the basis of your goodness or my goodness or or the sense of what you perceive to be my goodness as a teacher who can can espouse the law to you, if that's all you think, if you're going to come to him on the basis of your goodness, you don't understand goodness at all. I mean, goodness isn't going to church more time, more Sundays than you don't throughout the year. It doesn't make you good. Goodness isn't giving a certain percentage of your income to charity or making sure you help a friend when they're in a pinch. Don't, don't try to come to God on the basis of that kind of goodness because it doesn't even exist. Only God is good. If you want to know the standard of goodness, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Only God is good, which means only God can save. Salvation begins and ends with His goodness, not yours and not mine. That's the lesson, see? And do you see the disciples' response to his teaching? It's great. Verse 26, they say, well then, who can be saved? And that really is the question, I think, that this passage is meant to answer. That's what this is all about. And so let's work towards an answer together. Who can be saved? If obeying the commandments doesn't do it, if salvation isn't by works but by grace, then who can be saved? And the answer is in Jesus' next words in verse 27. What is impossible with man, he says, is possible with God. Do you know what that means? Jesus is saying that salvation, wherever you find it, is an absolute miracle of God's grace. Okay? 
I'll warn you, this is an amen moment. Ready? It's coming. Training. We're doing training. Okay, so it's appropriate if your heart explodes with gratitude that you respond in some way with a shake or an mmm really loud or something. Okay? Something. Not for my sake, for your sake. Okay? If you're a Christian, your life is a miracle. There you go. See? That, there you go. That's the appropriate response. If you're a Christian, you're a miracle. That's what that means. It's impossible that any of us would be saved. We don't have the strength for it. This young man is way ahead of most of us. He's kept all the commandments, at least according to him, but that wasn't enough. It has to be what God does. It has to be through his power, not ours. God has to intervene. Salvation is a supernatural event. And this is what the Bible is referring to when it talks about the kingdom of God. And it's everywhere in this passage. Look, verse 16. Let the children come, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And again in verse 24, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is the sphere and the realm where his power and authority are present and active, where his power is busy doing the impossible. To belong to or to enter into that kingdom means that you, your life changes locations and you come into a sphere, you come into the realm not of your doing, but of God's doing. No longer is your life lived in the realm of all of your doing, your strength and wisdom and power. You now have been transferred into the realm of God's doing. Not your wisdom, not your power, but His. Not your resources, not your strength, but His Spirit. And so why then is it so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God according to Jesus? We're told... That even here, this rich young man responds with sadness, verse 23, because he was extremely rich. And the problem, see, with being rich or successful or popular, let's don't make this just about money or moral even. The problem is, is that it's hard when any of those things define you to really feel your need, your strength or your resources, your connections are sufficient. When you have enough money to pay whatever bill might come in, it's hard to feel your need. When everybody likes you and everything's going great in your life, it's hard to feel your need. But need is what gets you into the kingdom. See, riches don't. Success doesn't. Moral excellence doesn't need. All you need to get into the kingdom of God, according to the scripture, is need. All you need is nothing. It's the old hymn we sang at the very beginning of the service, right? All the fitness he requires is to fill your need of him. So I turned 42 months ago. And, uh, and it does, it feels like a, a really big deal. And so, you know, the last six weeks I have a group of guys, we've been doing a, a fitness challenge to try to lose weight. And there are certain measures of fitness, right? You have to work out. There's a certain amount of physical activity. You have to eat the right things. And, and I've learned that it's way more about what you eat than it is about how you, act, you know, you can go kill yourself at the gym if you eat the same way you always did. You're not going to lose weight. At least not at 40. At 25 you can, I think. At least I remember it being that way. But not, not now. So there's certain, there's certain measures. You've got to pass on the ice cream late at night and late night snacks. You're aiming for a low percentage of body fat. Well, the measure of gospel fitness is just this. It's just need. The gospel fit person is the, is the person who lives with need. And so this is why Luke puts this passage here about this rich young ruler. Not only here, Matthew does the same exact thing in Matthew chapter 19. Luke puts the material side by side with, with Jesus' encounter of the children. You see this encounter with the rich young ruler? 
It's an illustration of, of the teaching up in verses 15, 16, and 17 when they bring the little children to him and the disciples rebuke him and Jesus has got really strong things to say to them there. And he says there, verse 17, that the only way that one can get into the kingdom is to receive it like a little child. See, there are two ways of going about your life. You can do or you can receive. You can do or you can receive. And, and if you're like the rich young ruler you're used to doing, your life, for the most part, is the product of your doing. But Jesus says that when it comes to eternal life, when it comes to life with him, when it comes to the salvation of your soul, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, there's only one way. You cannot come through your doing. You must become a person who receives. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child shall not enter into it. Back in chapter 1 of Luke, uh, as I can't remember off the top of my head which of the songs, whether it was Mary's song or, or Zechariah's song, but as they're singing, the her- heralding the, the coming of the king, this baby born in a manger in Bethlehem, one of the lines from Luke one fifty three is, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And, and there's just a great principle there. And it's this, if you come to him strong, you will go away lacking strength that is real strength. Because you'll be left with only your strength. But if you come to him with empty hands, you'll go away rich. If you come to him hungry, you will go away full. If you come to him weak, you will go away in his strength. Because this is the way of the kingdom of heaven. Weakness is the doorway to real power. Sin is the doorway to forgiveness and righteousness and restoration. Need is the doorway to eternal life. The abundant life and power and provision of God. But you have to be more like a child than you are like this rich young ruler. He would do something to earn his salvation. Naaman would do a great deed to earn his salvation. Tim Keller writes, the greatest deed to receive salvation is to admit that there isn't any deed to do. (laughs) He says, the hardest thing is to admit that no matter how hard you try, you can't earn it. It's not too easy to accept the free grace of God. It's too hard. That's why people aren't doing it. It's the hardest thing in the world. It's too scary. It's too humbling. It's too wonderful for us to let ourselves believe in it. And this is the great deed. This is the great deed that we must do that is even our doing in order to enter into heaven. This is the great deed to admit there's no great deed you must do. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. And very few people have that. So what do you do then? What do you do if, if you're more like the rich young ruler than the helpless child? What do we do? Because I think in many ways this is us. I mean, this is, this is the, the, the demographic of our congregation for the most part. And I actually like Matthew's report of Jesus and the children in Matthew 18. He puts it like this. He says, truly, he's a little stronger in the way he says it. He says, truly, unless you turn, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So you have to turn. And any guess what that word turn means? It's the word repent. So if you read this passage and you find similarities between yourself and the rich young ruler, if you're not very childlike, if you're used to doing and not receiving, then you have to turn, you have to change, you have to repent. You have to do what this rich young man was not willing to do. And what's that? Well, look what Jesus says to him here, verse 22. One thing you still lack. What's he lack? He lacks a sense of his need. 
So he just got through giving Jesus his spiritual resume, and Jesus says it's not enough. There's still something else that you have to do. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. But why pick on his wealth? And the reason Jesus picks on his wealth here is because his wealth was his life. It was his righteousness. It was the thing in his life that made him feel safe and strong and important. And Jesus will do the same thing to you and me when he comes after us. But in going after this man, he goes right at it. He says, you have to give up your wealth and become weak. You have to give up your righteousness and become spiritually needy. That's the only way to enter the kingdom of God. You have to lose your life in order to find life, eternal life. You have to lose your wealth In order to become truly rich, you have to lose your strength to find real strength. And Luke gives us the rich young ruler's response. He says, when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. And it's a strong word there that means deeply grieved, deeply distressed or disoriented. He literally begins to fall apart. It's it's not just kind of a, well, he shrugs his shoulders and walks away. He, He really has an existential crisis. He goes into meltdown mode here. And ultimately, he walks away. Why? Because money, for him, wasn't just money. It was his life. It was his God. He wanted God in his life, but not at the cost of his wealth. And so at the end of the day, his wealth was more important. His wealth was his God. And yet you and I can't get away. We cannot get away as much as we might like to. We can't get away from the passage in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, where Jesus comes preaching the gospel, and this is what he says, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You can't enter the kingdom without repentance. That is because whatever you look to, whether it be money or a relationship, whatever it is that you're looking to for life apart from God, it will take you out. It will ultimately destroy you. And so Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus loves this young man. He loves him by insisting on his repentance because he knows that if he doesn't repent, his money will ultimately destroy him and it may cost him his, his you know, life in heaven. This man is tied to money with a psychological umbilical cord. Just like a child is fed and nourished from the mother in the womb through the umbilical cord, he is sucking his life and nourishment, and security, and strength for money, and it can't give life. But for you, it may not be money. It may be a relationship. It may be a title. It may be work. It may be success. Whatever it is, Jesus says you have to let go and become weak. You have to cut the cord. And here's why. More money, and apply this not just here, okay, but let me say it this way. More money, more money typically means less of him. So if you want more of him, if what your heart needs is more of him, What do you do with your money? You have to give it away. Because there's an inverse relationship. More money means less of him. It's just the way the human heart works. And so there's only one way to get more of him. You've got to give stuff away. Now, I was meeting with a friend this week. He was in a relationship with a girl. and, And they're trying to navigate, you know, do we live near one another? Do we not live near one another? And I just looked at him and said, you know, you're so worried about taking care of her. Who does she need? Well, she needs Jesus. Okay, well, if you move near to her, then who is she going to have the most of? Me. Well, what's that going to mean? She's going to have less of him. Okay, so if she needs more of him, then what does she need from you? Less of me. Yeah, that's it. You got it. We're starting, right? How do you get more of him? I mean, the, the natural way of the human heart is not 
more of the things that you are prone to look to for life means more of him. It's always more of those things means less of him. So if what you need is more of him, there's only one way to get it, and it's to have less of these things. That's the teaching. That's the teaching. You have to move towards need. Aim your life at greater dependence upon God, less of whatever your heart is prone to trust in, which means more of him, and that's the lesson. And by the way, this is the way salvation works too, that in order to become a Christian, you not only repent of your sins, but you also have to repent of your righteousness. I mean, why did this young man walk away here? Because he couldn't give up his wealth. But the mistake he made was in thinking that what Jesus was doing with him him here was Jesus was making his giving up his wealth a condition of his salvation. Uh, but, but is that what he's doing? Of course not. Is selling everything a condition of salvation? Of course not. Jesus wasn't establishing a new, higher standard of righteousness for this man. He was trying to take away his righteousness. The man thinks he is basically righteous. He's a good guy. He just needs to tinker with his life a bit, right? He's coming to Jesus for a piece of advice about what his New Year's resolution should be next year. And with one sentence, Jesus destroys his entire system of righteousness Sell your possessions and give it away. And he walks away sad because he thinks he needs righteousness, but what he really needs is need. If salvation is by grace, then you don't experience salvation until you come to the end of yourself. You have to despair of yourself and then look to God to make up all your deficiencies in Christ. You can't have the righteousness of Christ until you have none of your own. You can't experience his power on this Pentecost Sunday You can't experience his power until you come to the end of yours. You can't live in the realm of his doing for you the kingdom of heaven until your doing, kingdom of heaven, until your doing is done. So you see, the things that we have are often the things keeping us from eternal life because the doorway to eternal life is need, it's weakness. And so the lesson of the text then is that sometimes you have to let go of the things in your life that make you feel safe and strong. In obedience to him, because if you don't, then you'll turn them into an idol. There's no other way to enter the kingdom of heaven. I wish there was, believe me. To find life that is really life, eternal life, there's really no other way. Repentance and faith is always a movement toward need, losing your life in order to find life. And if that's not happening, if you can't trace that out, if you can't say, okay, this is really where this applies in my life, let me, can I, I want to say something that might sound harsh, but if that's not happening, then what makes you think, what makes us think, we're any different from this rich young man who ultimately walks away from him. And so let me be clear about the kinds of things I think this text means for us. If you're wealthy, it's very possible that your wealth could keep you from eternal life. What do you do about that? Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and and get treasure in heaven and come and follow me. I mean, how do you find the strength to do? If that's really what we're being called to, if that kind of thing is the thing that we're being called to do by this text and others, how do you find the strength to sell all and to gain all and not just with money? And and I want to finish with this. There's two things. First, you have to be motivated by the prospect of heavenly treasure. And then secondly, you have to be comforted by the promise of heavenly treasures during your earthly pilgrimage. So let me just finish by applying this in those two ways. So the first thing I said was is that you have to be motivated. The only, only way that you can really, you and I, we can really inch towards obedience to the things that Jesus is calling us here is first we have to be absolutely convinced and motivated by the prospect of heavenly treasures. Look at verse 22 again. 
Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Let me read from 1 Timothy five seventeen through 19 also. As for the rich in this present age, Timothy writes, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that, listen to this phrase, they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's great. What is that which is truly life? According to Timothy, it's a life of, according to Paul, it's a life of generosity and sacrificially sharing with others and using your wealth to cause the whole community to flourish and not just amass it for yourself. Why? Because when you do that, you are storing up treasure in heaven that will last forever. Forever. So think about these two things. If you have Jesus, this text says, if you have Jesus and only Jesus, you are rich beyond comprehension. Far richer than any earthly prince. That's what he's saying. This rich young man is extremely rich. Verse 23, he has houses and land and servants and prospects that we can probably only imagine. But Jesus says that it is nothing. All of that that he has is nothing compared to the riches that he gives. The riches of his forgiveness, of his righteousness, of being adopted into the family of his father. And so what Jesus is teaching us here is whatever earthly treasures you give up in order to have those heavenly treasures. House, wife, brother, parents, children, whatever it might be, he says, and he promises here, it will come back to you many more times. Do you see that, verse 30? And so to to the degree that you part with earthly treasures for the sake of the gospel and the mission, it will exponentially increase your capacity for the enjoyment of the heavenly treasures that are true treasures that are yours in Christ. And can I say that, my friends, is what's called a safe investment. But here's the best part. Don't miss what he says, and here's where we're finished. He says, Truly I say to you, down in verse 29 and 30, there's no one who's left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more times in this life and in the age to come eternal life. So it's not just the motivation of the prospect of heavenly treasure, but the comfort of the promise of heavenly treasures even now during our earthly pilgrimage in this time right now. So don't, let me, let me be careful, don't twist this to say that if you give your money away that you will end up with more money. (laughs) That's not what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. He says, if you give your money away, he's promising your net worth may take a hit, but you will find a spiritual wealth and prosperity in the process that far outstrips material wealth and prosperity. If you leave this church and go and plant a church It will require more of you. You will have to set up chairs, take down chairs, more work. It'll be harder. There'll be less comfort, less ease. It really will cost you, but there will be a payoff of more joy and more purpose and more of his spirit that will far outweigh what you've left. If you sacrifice the community you've experienced in a community group in order to start a new group, I'm going to be honest with you. You may never have friends like the ones you left, but you will find comfort and support and joy in his friendship that you can't possibly imagine being true. There is no sacrifice you can make 
that the payoff will not far surpass what you have given. That's the promise of this text. And here's how I know we can take him at his word. And it's the reason you should know it too. This rich young ruler in our text failed miserably. He did the wrong thing. But this is really the story of two rich young rulers. See, there's another rich young ruler in this passage, far richer than this man, with far more authority than he had, and he did the right thing. Jesus is 31, 32 years old here, and he came from heaven, from infinite wealth, from the incomparable glory of the universe, and he obediently and willingly sold it all. He gave away his wealth, and now he's going into poverty deeper than anyone has ever gone, a poverty that we can't even imagine. He was stripped of his glory, his blessedness, his friends. He was stripped of his clothes. And ultimately, he will be stripped of his eternal communion that he shared with his father as he hung upon the cross for our sins. Jesus was wealthy beyond description, and he became poor. Why? So that we who were spiritually poor could become spiritually rich. So that we could inherit eternal life. He had all, and he sold all in order to gain us. He has spent his wealth and become poor to make us rich. So, friends, trust him when he says to you, no one has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more times in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. Jim Elliot probably most famous for being married to Elizabeth Elliot, uh, but a, a famous missionary pioneer in the mid-20th century, part of the student missionary movement, missionary to Ecuador, where he eventually was martyred for his faith. He gave up a, a, a great prospect of a ministerial career here in the States to go to these people who eventually killed him. There's a famous line from his journals, which really became a theme for his life and sums everything I've tried to say this morning up very well. And here it is. Jim Elliot, this famous thing he said, he says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's really the teaching of this text. And so let's pray together this morning. Can we, Father? These are hard things, we will admit, because our, our, our life really is attached to the things of this world, to created things the way uh, a child in a womb is attached by an umbilical cord to, their, to its mother. Uh, that we are drawing life and nourishment and strength from these things. And so to think of severing ourselves from them is, is frightening. It's scary. It feels like life would immediately go spinning out of control. And so we need much grace and much help from your spirit because you're, you're saying to us this morning, there's no other way to the eternal life that you long to give us than that we would experience more of you and experiencing less of the things that we so naturally give our hearts to. Father, it's so, so frightening. And so would you come? And would you powerfully work by your spirit to overcome our fears, to overcome our unbelief, to overcome the doubts of our hearts, and to um, cause us to see the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ that makes the loss of everything worth it because of all that we gain in the kingdom of heaven. Oh Lord, we need help. We need your spirit. We need your strength. Uh, Repentance is a gift, we know. And so come by your grace and, and grace us with it so that we might be a people that truly find life, and in finding it, that we might be a people who can offer it to the city you've called us to, because that's our hope. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we limp along the path to the promised land. 
Uh, we really do. We're limping towards the kind of obedience Jesus calls us to here. I feel that in my bones as I have to sit down after being up here in front of you to do that. The only way for him to become your treasure is to know that you're his. And what that does is it gives you the freedom on the one hand to say, you know, that's hard and I'm, and I'm limping and I'm going to continue to limp towards the thing he calls me to. But to not let that be an excuse because we're reminded on this day, Pentecost Sunday, that the spirit has come in power upon the church. We have at our disposal resources we can barely imagine to become the kind of people uh, that could do the kinds of things that he calls us to, not in our own strength, not to give ourselves any credit, but only by his grace. So let's don't, let's don't get in too big of a hurry, but let's don't sell ourselves too short either because of all that he's done and all that he's given to us uh, in the spirit. Uh, and so we continue uh, to strive uh, towards the rest that he offers us. Uh, that actually is the abundant life that he's come to give us. And so let's pray, and as we do, uh, we dismiss the service this morning. Father, go with us now as we go, as you promised to, to the end of the ages that you would be with us. Would you go, uh, would you go with us by the power of your spirit that we might be a people uh, full of f- good fruit, good works that honor and glorify your name. May you convince us today and this week of the surpassing greatness of knowing you that we might suffer the loss of whatever we must, that we might have as much of you as possible, because that would be to your great glory and to our good. And so for those two ends, we pray in Jesus' name.